everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Would living in an imaginary world help us solve complex problems that we face in cyberspace, geospace, and space? It is said that everything that we know about our reality comes by way of our senses like taste and touch and smell, sight and hearing, and its associated perception systems right from the day we are born. So if that is the case, then the entire experience of human reality is perhaps simply a combination of sensory information and our human brain's sense-making mechanism for that specific information. Does this mean that the world we know is perhaps a purely simulated reality? What would happen if we present our senses with made-up information about cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short referred to as CGS? Would the perception of reality in CGS also change in response to the simulated CGS feed? Would being presented with a version of CGS reality that isn't there but is perceived as real bring us a transformative potential? As we strive towards a virtual reality domain, a make-believe alternate world, it is not only important to understand how virtual reality technology will change the way we communicate and work, but also how in the coming years, this alternate world will influence the human mind and behavior towards cyberspace, geospace, and space. To discuss virtual reality further, I'm honored to welcome Professor Tom Furness to this Roundup. His full name is Professor Thomas A. Furness III, is an inventor, professor, and virtual reality pioneer based in the United States. Known for his contributions in developing human interface technology, Professor Furness has earned the title Grandfather of Virtual Reality. He's also a professor in the University of Washington Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering and the founder of the Human Interface Technology Lab at the University of Washington and sister labs at the University of Canterbury and University of Tasmania. Welcome, Professor Furness. We are so honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Jaisri. Wonderful. So as a pioneer of virtual reality technologies, what is your vision of the alternate world that is being created? Where do you want the virtual reality technologies to take us humans in cyberspace, geospace, and space? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, a virtual reality is really a transportation system for our senses. It does take us to alternative worlds. Um, when we need to understand that uh, when we're defining virtual reality, um, there are questions of what it is uh, versus what it does. And the original term virtual or virtual reality came from optical physics, actually. This idea of being able to perceive a virtual image. And we experience virtual images every day. For example, when you stand in front of the mirror, you see a representation of yourself on the other side of the glass. That is not really you, but it, it appears to be you. You are not standing on the other side of that piece of glass, but you see yourself there. Now, similarly, when we are, uh, when we are out in the world and uh, here I am at the, the beach and there's a, a film of water uh, and it's reflecting the trees. And so you see trees growing up, the real trees, but you also see trees growing down. And so those trees really aren't going down. That is a virtual image of the real trees. Now, similarly, we get virtual images with sound, uh, with the progression of our stereophonic sound systems, where we have two speakers, 
and ascending uh, mechanical vibrations in the air to our ears, um, we get a surround sound from that. And uh, indeed, we can hear instruments or people that are in the middle between the speakers that are not really there, but we hear them or we perceive them or our brain constructs the fact that they are standing there in between these two speakers. So all of these are virtual images, virtual acoustic, virtual visual, and ultimately we can do the same thing with our other senses, tactile, uh, smell and taste. So, um, so that's what it is. It is basically a way, as you mentioned, to take signals that are transduced so that they interface with the human in some way through our photons or mechanical vibrations or things that we can touch that create this sensation of a pattern. Now, this gets to the other side. What is that pattern that, they, they, that you perceive? It really is dependent upon how we program those devices. And, uh, but the way that we interface those devices to the human can provide such a panorama or what we call a circumambience of signal input that we think we're in another space. And so that's this notion of presence, that we go from the physical space that we're in and into this virtual space. And then we call that a world. It's like we go from the real world into this simulated world. And in that simulated world, we can put anything we want to that can be programmed in the computer or acquired by other instruments like scanning the real world and then we can go back and be in that real world again. So uh, the, the big impact of this is, okay, where do you want to go today? What kind of world do you want to visit? Because the rules that govern us in the physical world don't apply in the virtual world because we can change our scale factors. We can make ourselves one micron high or one light year wide. We can walk at the speed of light. We can change the force of gravity. We can change Planck's constant. We can um, basically do about anything you can think. We could fly. So the empowerment that we get in terms of taking our three-dimensional capability and then going into this synthesized world uh, gives us experiences that we'd never be able to have otherwise. So it is, it transports us. It puts us into other places. It actually uh, gives us this, this um, feeling that we're really there. Yes, yes, absolutely. And such, you give such wonderful examples and uh, it, it brings so much clarity because of that. And this technology, it seems it has such powerful potential because when we look at the complex challenges facing humanity, in not only the physical geospace, but cyberspace and space, the power and potential of virtual technologies brings us a promise to creatively and collectively solve all the complex challenges facing humanity. So for the alternate world that we are visioning and all the potential that it brings because of virtual technologies, virtual reality technology, do we have the necessary technologies that can help us 
take where we want to go to solve all these complex problems? Well, I think the answer is a yes, uh, or that we're getting there. Uh, certainly, we've made a lot of progress over the 52 years that I've been working in virtual reality. Uh, of late, we've made a, a lot of progress in bringing together the technologies that can cause this to happen. And uh, uh, we knew the power of it a long time ago uh, in the early experiments that we, that we did. It was clear to me that this was transformational, that there is no medium like this. I mean, it's nothing like TV or movies or, or even reading books where you're using your imagination. Um, this is something different, and it's not just an evolution, it is a revolution. And it, it has the ability to transform us, to unlock our intelligence, to link our minds globally, and so that we can go places and be with people um, almost as if we're with them physically. And we can then go do things together with those people, even though they may be remotely located from us. So the, uh, the technologies uh, have, of late have come from a confluence of things. Uh, certainly, uh, there has been this growth of computational technology that we've had over many years. But what has been spurring this uh, certainly has been the, the, the uh, internet and the uh, telecommunication systems that we've built, which are able to transport such so many bits per second that we never had before. And then, of course, the advent of mobile devices, especially smartphones. The, the smartphone market has really transformed the, the miniaturization and of the uh, computational technology and graphic signal processing, as well as uh, the screens. Uh, creating high-resolution small screens that can then be magnified, collimated, and projected so you see them as a big picture. Now, there are other alternative technologies that are coming along that really will uh, obsolete those. But uh, for the time being, we are at a tipping point where the technologies are good enough to sort of get us, get us close there to the, where we want well, to be and it turns out the human brain, of course, fills in the blanks. It may not be perfect, but uh, when we bring our experience to the virtual world, while the virtual world is bringing experience to us, we fill in the blanks. And it becomes like we're there. And we interact with those worlds like we're really there. And we remember them as if they're really there. Now, there's another important point here in terms of the transformation of humans and an unlocking of intelligence. I believe that we have the ability to dramatically accelerate our ability to learn, uh, to go into these flow states where we can learn, you know, five, six, seven times faster and retain it and be able to synthesize from it. Our studies that we've done over the years, funded by the National Science Foundation and others, show us that this really works that once you've been in a virtual world, you never forget it. And uh, the retention side happens because um, we are actually putting a place into people by putting people into places. It's like, it's like the difference between watching a video, a, a, a television program, or reading a brochure or a magazine article about Disneyland versus going to Disneyland. 
You will forget the article that you've written, read about Disneyland or the television program, but you'll never forget going to Disneyland. And so that's because a place has been put inside of you. And that's what virtual reality can do. It awakens our spatial memory. This is the address space. This is how our brain works. And our brain is trying to, to assign these um, basically addresses to these memories. Yes. And the spatial memory lets us do that. And so we're awakening an amazing capability by being able to put these places into people. And that's what virtual reality does. No, that's absolutely amazing. And uh, I mean, uh, as the virtual reality technology becomes more accessible, affordable, and it becomes more common and mainstream, there will likely be so many more innovative uses for the technology in the coming years, like you just talked about the education, how easy it is to educate someone, because you just don't forget that we are able to grasp that so quickly. But while this emerging parallel universe of unlimited possibilities seems to be so very promising, it is also important to evaluate how it is going to impact our human consciousness and behavior. Will it be good or bad? Because you just said that, you know, it. Uh, uh, these are the things that we need to understand how, why our brain is trying to grasp that knowledge so quickly because if we are in the virtual reality world, rather than if we read an article, we don't, you know, get that uh, information that quickly into our uh, brain but if we are in the virtual world that is so very easy to get that information so what is it that you know is it what we are doing to our human brain is it good or bad to you know have that kind of uh, influence of virtual reality but those are a lot of you know st i think uh, the studies will have to be done because it impacts the human psyche and human behavior. So we will have to uh, evaluate that effectively. But uh, talking about the state of virtual reality technologies, you said, you know, there's a lot of studies were done about the education system and how easy it is to train and uh, provide education using the virtual reality technology. Do you, what is the current status of that? Are we going forward with implementing that, you know, in our education system, uh, in all of our schools and colleges? Well, I would say that we are, but not at the rate that I think we should be. The problem is there is very little money in education. Um, the, and uh, the investments that generally are made in exploring these things are made by government institutions. Uh, and, uh, and we don't have a commercial pull. We certainly have the push that comes from people who want to explore this and from the government trying to get these things developed. But we don't have the pull in terms of the market side of things. And perhaps the reason for that is that um, people don't realize the power that it has. I think virtual reality, a lot of people really just still don't know about what virtual reality is. They think it's sort of a game kind of thing. And, uh, and because of that, uh, we don't have the marketplace, which is so necessary for us to bring the technology along, just like with the cell phone markets. Uh, the cell phone market with millions and millions and millions of people who are buying these cell phones really provide the economic incentive for the developments to take place. Now we know that it has great power from an educational standpoint, but the, we are not going to be able to harness this truly until there is the uptake or the pull that comes from, especially from the consumers of education, the parents, uh, the, the 
children themselves. Uh, just now we're doing an experiment at a middle school in, in Seattle where it's a brand new school. Uh, it's, the building is being completed um, as we uh, are speaking. And, and the teachers want to experiment with this uh, and to determine how uh, to best use virtual reality in the classroom. And one of the things we're starting off doing is actually have the kids building the worlds themselves so that they take these educational principles that have to do with science and, and math and um, history, whatever, and basically build a world using these tools so that they can not only learn from the process of building a world, but actually then provide that as a mechanism to teach others about that particular subject. And this way we can begin to build a library of experiences, of worlds that other students can use. And if you do this over many years and many schools, then we can build this uh, great library in the sky of virtual world experiences. So, and that's just a middle school. And that's a good time, by the way. That's a good time to be working on this where you're talking about sixth, seventh, eighth graders. That's a perfect time. And we've known for a long time that kids uh, love this stuff. They love VR. Um, but they love it because they can create it. It is a creative medium. And, uh, and it's not just a place to go experience worlds. It's a place to create worlds. So um, now let's, let's go to the other side, the sort of the dark side that you mentioned. Uh, because of the power of the technology, the bandwidth to the brain, we have this amazing capability to get bandwidth to and from the brain. It's not just what we perceive, it's what we do with it, what we perceive, and the interactivity that we have. So there's tremendous bandwidth. The problem is, how do we use that bandwidth? And to me, it's like splitting the atom. When we split the atom, we unleash enormous power. It's the same with virtual reality. We're unleashing enormous power. We're playing with fire because once you have that experience, you're never going to forget it. So what kind of experience are you going to have? Is it going to be an experience killing people? Or is it going to be an experience healing people? And understanding what's going on in Africa with people that are starving. So it's, um, it is so powerful that we need to be very careful the way we use it. And that's what really bothers me a lot. And the reason I started the Virtual World Society is that I felt the game community with this default of violence in games were going to take over this. And once you have been there physically in a, uh, or at least perceptually in a virtual world, and you've blown the brains out of another person, and you've seen blood spatter and brain material splatter and things like that, you'll never be the same. Yes. Now you're and that, that role-playing of violence uh, is, could have an enormous impact on children and adults as well. And so we have to be very careful. It's like splitting the atom. We can build, create a bomb with this, or we can create unlimited energy yes and so we as a civilization have to take these tools of our age and use them responsibly yes now, a, lot, a lot of people would say well let's not do it then 
you know, if we could harm people, let's not do it. Well, that's not going to happen because the cat's out of the bag. No, we have to responsibly use this power like we have with atomic energy. Yes, very true. Now, I, I, I support that, you know, wholeheartedly because these innovative way of doing things, the new technologies like this, we have to use it to for the benefit of the humanity. And I'm thinking about what you just said, that if we are, if, I mean, we should not allow the whole world to perceive this as just a gaming technology. That's not what virtual reality is. It is so much more than that. If we talk about like risk management, if we use the power of virtual reality technology, then before, you know, when we, when decision makers make decision all across nations and government industries, organizations and academia, if they have the, through the use of virtual technologies, virtual reality technology, if they are able to see that the decision that they are making, what impact is going to have, then they will be, you know, it will be probably much more easier for them to take the right decision because they will be able to see the impact of it, the implications of it. So th this has a very broad, much more broader and much more powerful impact. And there have always been, I think there have been some studies done which have considered how immersive virtual reality form that we take can affect our perception and action and how it can create body transfer illusion capable of influencing how humans would respond to different circumstances. So if we have the real power of altering perception through virtual reality technology, we can bring so much difference. But do we, are we there where we have the real power of altering perception through virtual reality technology? I believe we do. Certainly it's not perfect in terms of the medium. We have a long way to go with some of the uh, the capabilities of virtual reality. Uh, and, and, and just to, to mention that a few minutes, uh, uh, the certainly our uh, acoustic interfaces are really well advanced. Uh, with our digital signal processing capability, we can uh, use, we can do ear prints and we can do things like that to create true binaural sound uh, within a virtual environment. There's still work to be done. We aren't, aren't at A plus right now. We're probably at a at uh, a, a B minus, but um, uh, but when it comes to vision, we have a long way to go. We are not even close to matching the visual capabilities of the human. But we're at a point, as I mentioned before, where the brain can fill in the blanks. So it's it is at a tipping point, but we certainly still have a long way to go. And and uh, there's some new technologies coming along to address that. As far as tactile interface. You know, we still have a ways to go there. We don't have that yet. Uh, we do have some force feedback capability, but that is very difficult to do. But that will be an important uh, for some applications that are, are needed. Uh, and then, of course, there are the other senses, the smell and taste. Uh, they are really primitive right now, and especially the taste. There's nothing, we don't have anything there that, uh, that really uh, adequately can convey taste, yeah, except the real thing in the real world. So these, these uh, technologies are, are coming along, but still with what we have today, we're in a position to, uh, to have transformation and to begin to use this. And it's like the early days of the, uh, the silent movies. You know, we've gone from uh, uh, the, the introduction of the motion pictures uh, was transformative, you know, where people, instead of seeing a real stage, 
they're able to see a basically a virtual stage uh, through film. And, um, and then, of course, we went from uh, silent movies to, uh, to uh, sound movies, uh, then to color, then to 3D and stereo and cinemascope and all those kind of things. So we're sort of following that same trajectory, but with the notion that we're not just looking at something, we are in a place, which is, in, is where the transformation takes place. Yes. Now, what does this mean? Uh, we don't know actually what it means because this is really so new that nobody really knows. And so we are up to this point in time, we've been pushing the technology to allow it to happen, but we don't know the other side of it. So what, what happens now over a long period of time where people have daily, many hours a day exposure to virtual reality, what happens? How are they transformed? How does it affect their behavior? How do we redefine what we mean by reality? Because up to this point in time, we've said, well, reality is the physical reality we're experiencing. But if you're able to provide those same sensations with synthesized environments, then who's to say that that isn't reality? So we begin to blur this line between what is physical and what is virtual. And it's because from an experience standpoint, we can't tell the difference. So now the virtual becomes, it comes in our real world. And to some extent, the real world goes into our virtual world. So it's, it is, we don't really know. Yes. Uh, and that's, there's probably a, a, a hundred PhD dissertations in psychology <laughs> that will address <laughs> that, this subject over the years in the future. Yes, very true. But I mean, can you imagine the possibility? This is so powerful. Let's say some government decides to feed a virtual reality, a completely alternate world to all their people, but if they have some technology to be able to, you know, transport that kind of information to all the, you know, citizens, then what will be the, how, how what kind of impact it's going to create. So there are a lot of, you know, not just hundred, probably thousands of, you know, PhD thesis will have to go through this to understand this, that yes, there is a lot of positive, a lot of good that will come out of this. But we are also making ourselves so vulnerable because if some authoritative uh, governing body takes over some technology or is able to create a technology by which they feed this alternate reality to all their citizens, then we will lose our power to be able to think objectively, neutrally on our own because we are constantly being fed that information. So there is a lot to think about because uh, these, there are, and I think there are a lot of studies also going on to investigate how these digital stimuli can alter human perception, emotion, and physiological state, and how this digital interaction can enact social change in the physical world. Because like you said, the boundaries are blurring between the physical world and this virtual world. So do you think that at this point, just for you know our sake to understand and be confident, is there any technology that can provide that kind of social change through virtual reality? Can some, you know, entities or government agencies or governments, can they feed us this, you know, alternate information at this point? 
Oh, yes, they can. And really? uh, certainly this would be a, a tool for propaganda like we've never seen before. But, uh, but let's remember another thing, that uh, the totalitarian government uh, could, controls environments anyway, controls a media. And, uh, uh, and therefore, people don't really know anything else other than what they hear or what they read or what's, what's around them. So uh, this is being done already in terms of influencing people and what they think based upon uh, a way that you're contro controlling medium. Now, when if virtual reality is used in an environment where there is access to the internet, uh, and there will be a VR internet, uh, and the internet will morph in that direction, then there are alternative voices. And that is up to people to sort out on their own, from a moral standpoint, what they're gonna believe, just like they do now. And um, so it will be used for influence, for peddling influence in many ways. But one of the things that impresses me is the power of this technology to engender empathy. That uh, we read, the, we see these news stories about what's going on with the refugees. We see news stories about what's happening with human trafficking, with famine, with disease, all of these things. But it, it just doesn't register. I mean, it, it, we can watch it and we say, yeah, I, I think I understand. But if you go there and you're present there when this is happening, that changes you. Now there's a, a, a something inside of you that's awakened that you didn't have when you were looking at a screen or a newspaper because now you're there. It's like the raw you, raw meaning R-A-W, raw you is there and exposed from a visceral standpoint, emotional standpoint. And when you watch like the New York Times did with the food drop, in Africa, I don't know if you saw that particular uh, 3D video, but or, or 360, you were standing in that field with all of these people who are very hungry, emaciated, waiting for a food drop, and that to me changed me forever. I'll never forget it because I was there, and I saw the look in their faces. I saw their children. I saw them waiting for the airplane, looking for the airplane to fly over to drop the food. And when it did drop, they're rushing to get it. And, and, you know, that to me transformed me. That no news program or no article I could read did. And also being on the boat with um, the refugees. And, and all of these other things that say, okay, that's really what's going on in the world. We are so protected in the Western world. We don't really know what the rest of the, what's going on in the rest of the world. We need to know. And in that knowing, we can do something about it. We have, we're, can become more impassioned to do things about it. So in a way, this, I guess it's a form of propaganda too, uh, in, in terms of a, a providing an outlet to those problems that are in the world to awaken passion. Uh, that will take us off in these other directions. So if we're trying to unify mankind, uh, understanding that we're all global citizens and that what happens in one place is going to affect something that happens in another place, 
uh, we need to be aware. And our children need to be aware. And I think we're at childhood's end. I think that that uh, then this technology is going to be one of the instruments to take us past our childhood. We're still in our infancy in terms of a civilization because we haven't learned to do away with war. We haven't learned to do away with famine. We're still killing each other. Uh, and so that's not a very mature civilization. And the way that we will change that is by gaining understanding and being able to walk in somebody else's shoes and being able to learn and understand and grow and use the, the tools that we have with us. So I believe that back to the transformational impact of this technology, I think one of the biggest things it will do is awaken something that's inside of us that we haven't had awakened before because this ability to get to the heart is, um, is so important. And um, so, so to me, uh, yes, it can be used for bad things in terms of uh, a totalitarian uh, propaganda kind of uh, uh, arrangement to influence minds uh, by a government, but it can also be the opposite. It yeah. can expand our awareness, can inter interface. When we're able to go in real time and be in another place, in a family dwelling somewhere in India or China or Africa or wherever, and that we can uh, be there, that changes everything. Yes, yes. We realize that people pretty much are the same. They want the same things. They just want to be happy. They want to have food to eat, and they want to take care of their kids. That Everybody's the same when it comes to that sameness. And I think that governments tend to interfere with that. They're bad guys and good guys, right? And, and, they, and there's no such thing. It's really people just want to be happy. Yes. And, yes. No, you are absolutely right. And there will be, uh, with the power of this technology, we'll be able to right so many wrongs. We'll be able to do so many, so much good if we are able to effectively use the technology. But one weakness at this point I see is that the virtual reality modeling language that was first introduced in 1994, I guess, was it was intended for the development of these virtual worlds that we are talking about the visualizing and what kind of powerful change we can bring without any dependency on headset. But at this point, it looks like we still depend on the headset to be able to see that virtual world. So it seems that the at the moment, there is dependency of these headsets for the virtual reality world. Is, is there any technology developing which will take away that dependency of headsets? Do you see this evolving further? I do. Uh, certainly, the current technology requires that we have, at least the visual technology, requires that we have a, an object to look at even though we're looking at it through optical elements that make it appear to be at optical infinity, make it um, larger, so it surrounds us, things like that. But we are looking at a physical object. We're looking at a screen of some sort. And uh, that means that you have to have a screen somewhere. You have to have a physical device that you're looking at. And uh, right now, unless you're going to have a huge screen that surrounds you with collimated picture elements, 
then you have to bring it up close to make it smaller. And that's where the headsets come from. And then as you're tracking your head position, you're then calling up uh, the information you need for that particular vantage point. So it appears to be all stabilized in space. Now, um, there are finite limitations to how good that screen can be and how big it can be. But if you're able to scan an image directly on the retina of the eye, then you don't need to have a screen. And that is really that my original patent of the virtual retinal display or the retinal image projection is where you take a photon stream, you modulate it and project it directly on the retina. And you basically, instead of scanning on a screen, you're scanning directly on the retina. There is no picture that you're looking at. But what you perceive because of the photons that are reaching your retina is there's a world out there and it appears like the real world. Not only that, it can be almost any field of view you want it to be. It can be um, as bright as you want it to be, as high contrast. You can modulate depth, which we can't do, by the way, with these other um, accommodative cues that we can do in these other things. You can do all of these things, and that was invented 20 years ago. Actually, 22 years ago. My patents have expired. But this is what uh, new companies like Magic Leap are using, this kind of technology and a few other companies. So we do have these new technologies coming along that allow us to greatly miniaturize what you're wearing to where it's like it's not there. And, um, and, and using very low energy um, expenditure, uh, aug uh, providing augmented reality, which is another whole area where you're mixing the real world and virtual world together. All of these things are possible. So I think uh, in the interim, uh, uh, in the medium term, we will have these kind of devices emerging. Then eventually, we should be able, I believe, to build something like the holodeck, uh, where we don't have to wear anything at all to go experience these spaces. Now, that's going to require some work to do, and you may have to be in a special room to do it, <laughs> but I think we'll eventually get there, with especially when we're using coherent devices where we're using lasers. And uh, there's some cool things we can do with lasers that we can't do with uh, other uh, kinds of optical devices or light-emitting devices. So, uh, yes, uh, it's, it's um, again, all of this requires a pull to it, uh, the economic pull. I mean, we can push uh, with... Uh, with the kind of research that's going on, but in order to really get it over the, the hump, uh, we need to have the applications. And one of the, by the way, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is there, that we've talked mainly about consumer applications, but there are enterprise applications of VR, which I think uh, in the next uh, few years are going to be the pull because we're going to see that companies are realizing the power of this technology for design, for training, for medical visualization, for all of these areas that where it is transformative in those spaces. And they, by the way, have the economic power to do it. Ford Motor Company and, doing, and, and, and GM and Toyota and all these companies that are doing design 
of automobiles and, and not only design, but the manufacturing and planning the manufacturing. All of this can be dramatically impacted by what's going on in, in VR and using those tools. So I think that we will see larger investment coming from uh, enterprise applications that uh, as juxtaposed to the consumer applications, you know, the gaming and things like that. And that will also help things like education we talked about, where, where now the technologies are brought along and now they can be repurposed for lower cost educational applications. So yes. Mm -hmm. Very true. No, and I think it makes sense from what you are saying that uh, we do need a screen and that's the reason there is so much development happening using the smartphone because all the applications for virtual reality, I think there's a lot of focus on the smartphone. And uh, if, if other than the screen, what other components like uh, screen is essential and at this point, headphone is essential. What else is essential to create that uh, virtual reality around us? Are those two components enough or do we need more? Well, the only way that uh, you can create a virtual reality using a device that you're wearing is that you're uh, getting an instantaneous view of the world. Now, uh, normally uh, our visual system gives us a 220 degree view of the world, and uh, which is huge, uh, instantaneously. But our screens and the optics we use and that we're deriving from cell phones, some from smartphones, only will give us maybe up to 110 degrees of that. So, you know, that's all that's a half of the receptor field that we have in our eyes. So what we have to, to do first is that's a small picture. But uh, we move the picture around. And as we move it around, we have to track it. We have to know where it is located so that we send those signals to the graphics processors and that which read from the memory what kind of world we have stored and then bring up the new picture. So you're now refreshing that picture maybe 100 times a second so that you're bringing up a new picture 100 times a second depending upon where you're moving. Now, if you do it properly with high accuracy and high update rate, it appears to be one big world as you're looking around because it's it updates fast enough where you don't perceive that you're actually looking at a different world every time you you move your head so the tracking system is very important and um, a tracking system that allows you to physically move around is more difficult to do than one where you're sitting still in a chair for example i'm sitting in a chair here uh, as i have a very small motion box of my head my head does not move that much in terms of translation and rotation. But if I'm getting up and walking around, that's a huge motion box because my head is translating as well as rotating uh, within that, that huge motion box. So the yes. tracking is important, but we're doing pretty well with that, at least with limited space, li limited motion boxes in a room kind of, kind of situation. Now, there's also the technology we need to interact with the world. How do we use our hands? How do we use speech? How do we, uh, how do we use where we're looking? Uh, that's also other tracking things that we need. Uh, certainly, uh, if we're trying to build an intimate 
a high bandwidth system, we would want to know where the eyes are looking in that world. And we can use that to not only select things, but we can make our eyes move to another person who's in their virtual world looking at us. So they see our eyes moving around, you know, and and, and a representation of ourselves. Um, but we also need to track hand position and uh, and finger position and things like that. So that now is still not perfect. We have these devices we hold in our hand. We're able to track in six degrees of freedom. Uh, but what we'd really like to do is see our real hands. And we'd like to see our real feet in virtual reality. But now we can't. I mean, we see a representation of that. And we'll have better and better representations. So there is this whole other area of, uh, of uh, the, uh, what we call augmented reality. And augmented reality is a, a very important component of this whole immersive computing situation. In the case of augmented reality, what you're doing is taking the real world and you're augmenting it with virtual things, either with graphics or objects or whatever. And what this does is add to what you understand is going on in the real world. Now, we used to do this in fighter cockpits all the time. For 23 years, I was developing fighter airplanes for the, for the military. And uh, this is where we really invented virtual reality, what we know today is virtual reality. But it really started out as augmented reality because what we're doing is taking the real world and superimposing on that real world information. Information had to do with our flight status, the attitude of the aircraft, bomb sites, gun sites, all this kind of thing. And then we started putting images superimposed in it and things like that until you see now, for example, the new F-35 uh, uh, cockpit, the um, Joint Strike Fighter, has a lot of this VR stuff in it where you're seeing through the, the uh, cockpit and things like that, seeing through the airplane via, via sensors. So anyhow, there is this augmentation side of it. And uh, it's interesting what you can do with augmentation. The beauty of augmented reality is that you, in a way, don't have to worry about the conflicts that you would get in visual cues versus vestibular cues that you'd get in the virtual world. For example, um, it's very important that when we move our head that the, uh, in the virtual reality, that the scene also works in correspondence with that. If there's any delay in that, then uh, that can cause people to get sick. Uh, but also in virtual reality, we close off the peripheral retina. And the peripheral retina is what helps us maintain postural stability and give us our sense of movement. And we're not using that. We're closing that off, this far periphery. Now, with augmented reality, it's open. So you see the real world there. And that, goes, that problem goes away. And that's why the, the Microsoft HoloLens does this. It limits the field of view of the virtual part uh, so that you can keep that open so people don't, won't get sick. Um, so um, there are so many different manifestations of technology in terms of tracking with a, a representation of sound, vibration, and so forth that communicate to us. Now, hopefully, 
They communicate to us in a natural way, like the real world does, because we've already learned those kinds of things. Otherwise, we have to adapt to, to that that vibration means something. Yes. rather than the vibration being something directly sensed as we would in the world. So, so the idea is to make it as realistic as possible and as natural as possible with natural language, natural language in terms of speech, natural language in terms of gestures, in terms of head and eye movement and things like that. And we will continue to, to evolve the technology to get closer and closer and closer to the way we work as humans so that that synthesized world not only is perceived but we interact with it like we do with the real world now there are things that we can do of course in virtual worlds that go far beyond what we can do in the real world for example i can take my arm and move it out and i can make it one mile long i can make my reach a mile long or two miles long and i can make my interpupillary distance a light year and so i get a different perception of the universe or i can make it one micron and so these are ways that sort of bend our mind but take these things that the way we perceive the real world and put them in these synthesized environments so we get a new experience if we can walk on the surface of mars um, by taking the images that were obtained by Mars, but we're walking around on Mars. That's a lot different than looking at a TV program or looking at a screen where we're scrolling around on Mars. If we're standing there, we'll never forget that. The same can be true as if we're walking on the surface of a, a scanning electron microscope surface of the wing of a butterfly. That becomes our landscape. We're walking on a butterfly or we're scaled a one inch high and we get a frog's eye view of the world. So those things are what, because of our technology, we're able to transform our perception. So there is the matching part, but there's also the transformation part that comes from, from um, the virtual. All of this has to be uh, backed by computational technology. And certainly, that is uh, amazing what we're doing now and with, um, with uh, our new chips and the, um, the ability to have uh, you know, thousands of processors that can work in real time and with um, you know, high density memory and all these kinds of things. So, I mean, it's, all of this is coming together. It's a confluence of these technologies and they can all come together. Absolutely. How much computing power does this need to be able to create that kind of virtual environment? Well, I mean, uh, you can do it with a, um, you can get a satisfactory virtual world using a high-end laptop computer. Uh, certainly the, the update rates and the, um, the, the resolution can be delivered through the pipeline uh, is, is pretty good that you can get. Now, with, uh, certainly with desktop computers, you can get more capability. But you, theoretically, uh, you for $1,500, you should be able to get a, com a computer with enough capacity to uh, give you a satisfied, satisfying virtual experience using uh, attached to a, a conventional um, device like the HTC Vive or the Oculus Rift. Um, 
And of course, the other devices use cell phones. You just stick your cell phone into optical viewing device, like the Samsung Gear and other the Google Cardboard. Um, that also can be pretty good, depending upon yes. what you're trying to do. Yes. So um, it's it, it's amazing what we have now. And of course, it's interesting that Apple is getting into this, and uh, and I think that Apple and Samsung. Uh, and their competition with each other are going to continue to raise the ante in terms of the capacity, the computational capacity in these mobile devices that'll make that better and uh, and higher resolution and, and so forth. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's going to be very amazing to see the advances in the coming years. And uh, there are so many applications. I mean, if we try to address the applications, uh, that could be developed for any specific industry just to address one industry is going to take us probably you know more than an hour so uh, what we're going to do is we're not going to talk very in-depth uh, <clears throat> sorry about that very in-depth about the applications of this technology for different industries but uh, and we we address the promise there is so much potential of this technology and what we could achieve what kind of transformation it could bring not only in geospace but cyberspace and space and there is amazing uh, advances that are happening uh, based on you know what you are telling me and what i have uh, researched so there is a lot of potential a lot of promise but there are also a lot of problems and a lot of questions and a lot of challenges that needs to be overcome and uh, like with any, any technology there are always you know uh, with uh, promise there are also perils so we have to address all, all of that so now virtual reality technology also faces a number of challenges including health and safety privacy technical issues uh, non-technical issues so what concerns and challenges do you see as the applications of virtual reality emerges across nations well i believe certainly there are uh, there are uh, transformational applications that we've talked about before in education and medicine and uh, uh, scientific research and uh, and entertainment as well um, but I think that back to the issue we really don't know uh, the longitudinal impact of using the technology over extended periods of time we know that most people's experiences in VR may be you know 30 minutes or an hour long but what happens if it's eight hours long, uh, five days a week or seven days a week or whatever? Um, we just don't know. And so I think we won't know until we gain more experience and people start using these things. But we need to be observant to watch for emerging behaviors, emerging behaviors from a good side as well as from a bad side and uh, to realize that we are playing with fundamental perceptual mechanisms in the human and that we are altering them maybe subtly but we're altering them in some way and that we need to start understanding what that means in terms of the um, debilitating influence that might have or the adaptation influence it might have I have a feeling that humans tend to adapt really well, but, but in a process of adaptation, we may also harm something else. I mean, in the early days of VR, when we had a latency problem between head 
tracking and the display that came up. You know, there was sort of a, it's sort of like a garden hole effect, you know, that your head, you moved your head and then the image would catch up uh, eventually. Uh, there was a, a problem. Yes, you could make it work and you could get uh, immersed in that world. You could have this, this um, uh, phenomenon of suspension of disbelief and you're there in that world. But I noticed myself, because I've probably spent more time inside virtual reality than anybody else in the world probably. But I noticed that uh, when I was uh, driving my car back home, now turning my head, looking at something, looking in the mirror, that I had this vertigo sensation because it didn't act right. And what was happening is that in my brain, I had stored two different coefficients for the interaction of my head movement and, and eye movement and sensation of space. One of them was the real one, the physical reality, but the other one was a virtual reality. And my brain didn't know what I was doing. Was I in a real car or was I in a virtual reality thing? And so it caused a sense of vertigo. I also noticed myself walking into door, uh, door jam because um, in virtual worlds, you can walk through doors. I mean, you can walk through doors, you walk through walls, things like that. And I was hitting my shoulder on these because I was sort of sloppy in the way I was going through these doorways in virtual reality. And uh, when I was going doing it in the real world, I was, uh, you know, causing it. So it's a lot better now, by the way. The virtual reality today doesn't have those kinds of problems. So I think we've solved some of the first order effects first order problems, but, but we have to look at these second order and third order issues that come up. And so this is going to require a lot of study. And, and I'm not saying that we have to spend 10 years studying long, these long, conducting these longitudinal studies before we fire the starting gun. I think it's already happened. The starting gun has already happened. But we have to observe and, and, uh, and do the studies probably funded by the government, uh, that look at these potential problems that may emerge. And we need to build standards. The, uh, there's, this is another big issue. We really don't have a good set of standards for not only the hardware side, but the world side. And, uh, and I'm afraid with the enthusiasm, a lot of these people are rushing into to VR, making content for VR, they violate a number of these things we already know are issues. For example, you don't want to create a conflict between your visual and vestibular cues. If you're sitting still, but you're riding in a virtual roller coaster, this means that you have a conflict from what your inner ear is telling you, your vestibular mechanism, versus what your eyes are telling you. Your eyes are saying, I'm on this roller coaster moving around. And your vestibular system is like, no, you're not. You're just sitting there in a chair looking around. And so this conflict causes people to get sick. Yes. And, uh, and that's a showstopper. If people get sick in VR, that's a showstopper. Yes. And, uh, and gives it a bad rap. And that all comes because of people who are developing content who don't understand that you're playing with fire. You're playing with a fundamental uh, mechanism we have in the brain that is going to be very susceptible to those issues. And so uh, being able to screen content 
following a set of rules is so important and we don't have that in place yet yes. and so the standards organizations need to go to work on this and and this is something that uh, the IEEE I know is uh, is working on and, and some other organizations uh, ACM Associate for Computing Machinery and uh, so but we need to get that that worked out because we don't want to make people sick and, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And we also need to come up with proper regulations that would uh, tell what, we, which areas we should be able to develop the applications and where we are not allowed to yes. go. Because yes. we need to draw those barriers. Otherwise, this technology is so powerful. There's so much potential that if people start using it for wrong reasons, if some terrorists get hold of this technology and they start, you know, feeding a whole different, you know, virtual world to the people and it creates, uh, makes more terrorists or try to, you know, make the common citizens do some crimes or terrorism mm -hmm. by feeding that virtual, you know, reality information. So that is going to be very disastrous. So there is a lot that we will need to do. I mean, th there is amazing potential. This is an absolutely amazing technology, but there, there is a lot of uh, uh, risk that we need to be aware of. We need to identify all those risks. We, we need to create uh, proper boundaries and we need to create proper uh, ecosystem in which we, those risks uh, uh, do not become reality because that is where we need to draw the line. And because this messes with the brain, this could mess with the brain, the power is so... Uh, it is something that we really have to be very careful about because you know with some implants that could come in future and uh, uh, if the wrong if this kind of reality alternate world is fair to everyone then the kind of uh, complex challenges that we would you know be facing is just you know monumental so we will have to be very very careful as we progress further as the innovators developers you know take the next step and create develop more and more applications but and there are a lot of young people young innovators young scientists who young tomorrow tomorrow's uh, uh, you know that they are our tomorrow they are developing all these amazing technology along with you know of course uh, many other scientists but a lot of young people young students they are very passionate about this very excited about this what would you like to tell them or to all of our global viewers and listeners who want to make a difference in the world by innovating, by create, by a lot of them, these young generation, they're not after money, they're not after trying to create a crime, they're trying to make a lot of, you know, wrongs right. They want to create a difference, they want to help the world. So where should they start? What should they focus on how in, uh, if they want to create uh, applications using this technology? Okay, that's a great question. Um, let me start off by talking about um, the issue of risk. Certainly, we are talking about technology that has high risk in terms of the impact on humans from an, ad an adverse standpoint. But we're also talking about technology that can be transformative in terms of lifting mankind. Uh, and I can't emphasize this too much, that it's like splitting the atom. It's like writing on the brain with permanent ink, that uh, this is something that is, we have in our hands that we can use for good or for bad, and that we need to be responsible about that and be informed and understand as much as we can about the power we have in our hands. Now, let me tell you another little story. It has to do with um, 
children and about VR. And it tells us about these young people that we that you asked the question about. What would I want to say to them? When we started with VR in my university setting in 1991, we did a project with the Pacific Science Center. It was sort of like a summer academy, summer camp for kids who wanted to learn about science and things like that. And uh, we were given the opportunity to sponsor one of these uh, segments, one of the trajectories through that, which was the VR one. There was a robotics one and a biology one and things like that. So we wanted for the first time to give children the opportunity to build their own virtual world. And uh, we thought, ah, this is going to be tricky because we don't know if they'll get it that we'll get what it really is. And so what happened was, um, so we started off, this was going to be a six-week period with a group each week, six groups. And so we, we uh, explained to them what a virtual reality was, and we gave them some computers and some 3D uh, technology, 3D software to generate worlds, and we said, you can go build any world you want to build. And you decide what world you want to build, but each of you have a polygon allowance. You can only spend so many polygons on what you build, each of you, because the machines we had to render this were really limited. So the idea would be they would design this world and then on the last day, they'd bring it up to my laboratory. We would put it into our graphic supercomputer and they would go into their world and spend the last day in the world. That was the drill. So we thought, you know, are they really going to get it? Are they really going to understand it? And uh, uh, we needn't have worried because in 20 minutes they were doing it. They were building their own world. And we saw them sitting around deciding what kind of world to build. And now these are, these are nine-year-olds nine to 14, nine to 14. So you have 10 kids sitting around deciding what kind of world to build. They can start from scratch, they can build anything they want to build. And you hear, see the dialogue going on. And uh, uh, some of the boys would say, well, let's put some, shoot, let's shoot this and let's shoot that. And the girls are saying, why would you ever want to do that? You have a chance to build a world, a new world. Why would you put that in it? And the guy said, yeah, why would we put that in it? And these worlds they built were amazing. No violence in any of them. We did this over two summers. No violence. They were whimsical. They were delightful. They were funny. And what we see, what we saw from that, is the problem we have today, especially in the gaming community, is it's the adults that make the games. The adults that put the violence in there, thinking that that's what the kids want. And they don't. They want to create. And that's what we've seen happen with Legos. That's what we've seen happening with Minecraft. They want to create. That's what's inside of them. Now, back to how does this relate. When uh, I gave a talk at uh, AWE, Augmented World Expo, in um, 2015, and the, the talk was Being the Future. That was the title of my talk being the future. 
And what I was talking about has is that we are in such a high st sea state right now that we can't see the horizon anymore. Things are happening so fast, we can't see the horizon. We cannot use our traditional compasses. We cannot shoot the stars because it's clouded over. We're in this stormy sea where things are happening so fast, the dynamics going on in our civilization. So what do we use for our navigation system? And what I proposed is a new navigation system that I call the nextant, the nextant, which is the next sextant. And what it is, is our hearts. It's inside. What's going on inside of us? Because we know what's good. We know what's right. And that's what should guide us. And not all this other stuff that's out there. We know. And we should listen to ourselves and listen to our own hearts. And when I talk to these young people who are so enthusiastic about wanting to get into this business, wanting to build virtual worlds, and they're, they're growing like crazy. And they really are amazing people. I ask them this question, what does your heart tell you? And they say, well, yeah, I shouldn't build that game that where we blow people up. Maybe I can do something of teach people how to love each other or, or how to build bridges yes, or solve uh, mosquito-borne diseases. Um, so, you know, that's what we need to be doing is using this to solve problems and have fun doing it and have fun learning. That's another thing about VR. Not only do you learn and you remember, it's fun to do it because you can do these amazing experiments in VR that you can never do in the real world to test things, test your hypotheses or these ideas that you have, and to do that with, uh, uh, with kids and things like that. So I think that my advice, again, the bottom line of my advice is to, you know, look inside in your own heart and what you can do with, with the intelligence that you have to lift mankind. And to use these tools of our age, this VR and AR and immersive computing, um, to do that, as tools to do that. Well, that's a great advice. Thank you so much, Professor Furness, for participating in Risk Roundup today. And uh, along with our global viewers and listeners, we all will we all appreciate your thoughtful insight on virtual reality. And uh, all of our global viewers and listeners, they are going to benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the promise and perils of virtual reality. So even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to innovate, and apply the virtual reality technologies to their initiatives and industries. Based on the discussion we had today, this Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. You're welcome. So as all signs point to a future filled with virtual reality, the potential applications are expected to be beyond count. It is important to evaluate the perils of virtual reality applications as we march forward with the promise and potential of virtual reality technologies. Risk groups, cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIOA and CGS, and nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that 
risk management, security and peace, they walk together hand in hand. So security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict. Risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secured for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.